Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Parliament has returned, the reshuffle is over and government is getting back to normal. Well, not really. The minimum budget fallout continues with Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng now bringing forward his midterm fiscal review to the end of the month. Halloween, in fact. And yesterday, Liz Truss risked spooking the markets again by insisting she would make no spending cuts. Today, and we're recording this at lunchtime on Thursday, the markets seem to be buying the rumour there may be a further U-turn underway. We'll take a look at an eventful first week back in Westminster. When it comes to Parliament, the Prime Minister has a 70-ish majority and nothing to worry about, right? Wrong. The PM could have a nasty autumn ahead. We'll talk you through the minefield that Trust will have to navigate. And while the economy is the number one topic of discussion in Westminster right now, it wasn't all that long ago that Brexit dominated conversations and fierce debates in Parliament. Not anymore. A new IFG paper out today says Parliament is failing to do its post-Brexit scrutiny duty. We'll ask the questions about the questions not being asked. Joining me this week are two IFG colleagues who can answer any question you like about Parliament and Government, and that's Senior Fellow Jill Rutter and Senior Researcher Alice Lilly. Hi both. Hello, Hannah. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted to be joined by Aubrey Allegretti, who is political correspondent at The Guardian. Hi, Aubrey. How are things? Hello. All good. Very fun. Looking forward to a peaceful autumn? Yes. Can't wait. Just as peaceful as the summer. (laughs) So we'll start with a subject that there is really no escaping from, and that's the economy. Aubrey, what's your sense of the mood in government right now? It's very, 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 very dark. I mean, Portcullis House is normally awash with plotters, even when times are fairly good for the government. But at the moment, they are absolutely incendiary. And the conversation is really revolving around how to do the impossible, how to unseat a prime minister who there is almost no mechanism to remove until September next year, whilst we, the sort of general public, are watching on And the Conservative MPs are wondering how to hold on to their seats whenever the next election comes, whether that's in the next six months, unlikely as it is, or potentially as far away as maybe two, two and a bit more years away. So there's real upset amongst the parliamentary party at having, I suppose, felt like they reached out to Liz Truss and they they tried to help her and prevent a lot of the problems that she's now experiencing, that that was shunned. And also that there is this sort of horrible turbulence that is again besetting the Conservative Party. And do you think the fact that Conservative MPs are relatively pessimistic about their chances whenever the next election comes will actually end up helping Liz Truss because they won't want to precipitate an election? Or do you think that's the serious risk to her uh, leadership? Well, obviously, we don't have a situation anymore where MPs have to vote for a general election. So they have no no say in the matter, really. It's completely up to her. And it's in some ways quite a potent weapon to be able to say, get behind me and get in line. Otherwise, I'll call a general election and you'll all lose your seats. But obviously, that will just completely backfire because it will see her thrown from office and the sort of glittering future of growth that she tried to paint for the country over the summer uh, will sort of dissipate. So I don't think that it holds very much water with the rebel Conservative MPs, most of whom were very sceptical about her in July during the parliamentary process when it was only about a third of them that voted for her in the first place, just less than. All of that support is slowly ebbing away. And obviously the main thing, as it was with Boris Johnson, we're looking for is people who are turning against her rather than the naysayers who've been against her from the beginning. It's how many people are leaving the government, 
obviously ministerial resignation watch is kind of issue number one, but then how many of her loyal supporters on the backbenches are also turning away. And Jill, Chancellor's brought forward his next statement. Um, Why is that significant? Well, I think the thing is that all of this goes back to that fundamental massive misstep that the Chancellor made on the 23rd of September, which was not to do the energy package. The government keeps on reminding us it had to act urgently on the energy package. And the government is right. They did have to act urgently on the energy package. And actually, people thought that was temporary. And I think the markets would have bought that being done in the same way as furlough, in a way in which you didn't you know, have to accompany it with the full bells and whistles of an OBR assessment. But the Chancellor decided to not just do the energy package, big and unfunded and actually bigger and more unfunded maybe than people expected, no windfall tax then, and a two-year guarantee on households when a lot of people thought that in the first instance you might do six months and then possibly rein it in with something more targeted. So they did the energy package and I think could have got away with that. But then in order, I suppose, to give a degree of momentum into the Conservative Party conference, they decided to do this completely unnecessary mini budget. They could have easily waited for a normal timetable and done an October or a November budget with a proper OBR forecast, but they didn't. So they then cancelled the increase in corporation tax, made clear they were proceeding with the repeal of the health and social care levy, the sort of morphing of the NIC increase, but still going ahead with the spending increase on health. And as we know, threw in, you know, some other tax measures for good measure, the repeal of IR35, the uh, stamp duty changes, the 45p tax rate abolition. And that has completely spooked the markets because the government's story is it all adds up because we're going to unleash massive growth. And the markets basically went, we don't believe you uh, because you know, nobody, everybody would love to be able to suddenly zap the UK from a really anemic growth rate to have 2.5% per annum growth. But you don't get 2.5% per annum growth just by saying you're going to get 2.5% per annum growth. So the Chancellor's accelerated forward the statement that was supposed to accompany his 23rd November budget to try to reassure the markets that he does have a plan that adds up. But I think with the Prime Minister yesterday at Prime Minister's Questions ruling out spending cuts, Nobody can see a plausible way of making the numbers add up that the OBR will buy uh, without reversing a good measure of the tax changes that were announced in that mini budget. And it's quite interesting that the markets today seem to be reacting more positively because rumours are swirling that the only thing that we're waiting for is quasi Quarteng's plane to land from Washington to hear which of those tax cuts will be reversed. But of course, the moment Liz Truss reverses those very substantial tax cuts, she really said, you're basically getting you know, getting me implementing the policies offered to you by Rishi Sunak, because that was the big differentiator in that conservative leadership contest that Liz Truss was saying, no, you're going to get uh, tax cuts from me, low tax, small estate. And Rishi Sunak was saying, you just can't do that with inflation where it is at the moment. It's fairy tale economics. The markets will come back to bite you. And Rishi Sunak, who now seems to have reappeared in London, is probably you know, bathing in Schadenfreude. <laughs> Aubrey, I mean, what did you make yesterday of, of Liz Truss saying 
no no spending cuts and and these rumors which are emerging today it was very odd you could sort of feel the ripple around the press gallery we were all watching spectating and you kind of couldn't believe that she came back with such a blunt committal answer because not only was it sort of rippling through the, the gallery but obviously you could see it on the benches below both the opposition side thinking oh my goodness, what have they just committed to? Particularly Keir Starmer, who I think had probably expected to lead her into a bit more of a sort of topsy-turvy trap than something that she would shut down so quickly. But also on the Conservative benches that were so kind of glum. And I think some of them did realise quite immediately the impact of what she was saying and the potential impact that would then have on the markets because then there would be the question of how much you're able to fund all of this kind of loss to the exchequer by. So... A really incredible move and one that is obviously going to be very hard to, a, a very hard square to circle, meaning that inevitably there will have to be further U turns. Gerard Lyons, one of the economists Liz Truss has praised before, was, I think, overnight suggesting the corporation tax and raising that, as Liz Truss said she was not going to do, was probably going to be, have to be the first thing on the list. Yeah, I guess some of it might be about timing, uh, she might claim, rather than that, a change of, of heart altogether. Jill, we have a new permanent secretary at the Treasury. What can we read into that? Uh, we do. Uh, we have somebody called James Bowler, uh, relatively unknown, as I was intrigued to discover when a friend who is a well-known economic commentator had to text me to ask whether his name rhymed with owl or roll. So a rather sort of you know, unknown figure. Um, given that they'd sacked Tom Scholar on day one, James is probably as near as you could get to find a Tom Scholar clone to reinstall at the Treasury. So uh, the problem is that James you know, is a Treasury veteran, but like the other members of the new Treasury top team that's been unveiled, Beth Russell and Cat Little as the second permanent secretaries, they're all sort of good, solid, you know, Beth and James Treasury lifers, Cat Little come in from elsewhere, but most of their experience is on the tax and spending sides of the Treasury. And what they really have lost with losing Tom Scholar in that sort of cavalier way on day one is somebody who had been through the you know global financial crisis, the rescue packages there, was very well known on the international scene. He'd been the UK executive director at the IMF. He'd been our you know, G7 Europe Sherpa for David Cameron, done those European negotiations, are very well known, and had done a lot of work, would be very well known with the Bank of England and with the markets. They'd also, earlier in the year, also lost the second permanent secretary at the Treasury, who'd been in charge of the sort of financial services side, Charles Roxburgh. So although it, this is as about as reassuring a signal you can give that economic orthodoxy is back in the Treasury as you could give. I think James is a, James will take some time to actually establish the sort of reputation, if you like, that, that Tom would have had externally in all those contacts. But I think it's very interesting because we know that the Chancellor's preference appeared to be to appoint Antonio Romeo, former permanent secretary to Liz Trust at the Department of International Trade, the job that James Bowler actually took over from when Antonio moved to the Ministry of Justice. But Antonio would have been a very, very outlier appointment in the Treasury because the Treasury has never had a permanent secretary appointed who has not worked for a substantial proportion of their career in the Treasury. And I think uh, Liz Trust seems over the weekend to have worked out that this would have just been another risky move and 
had they announced Antonio's appointment, I think we'd have all been looking to see what that did to sterling and what that did to guilt rates, the sort of you know way in which the markets are marking the government's economic management at the moment. You know, would there have been an Antonia discount on sterling? I think quite a lot of people think there might have been. Alice, one final question on what's currently going on. Um, Alicia Kearns has been elected as the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, uh, replacing Tom Tignan, who's gone into government. She's the first of the 2019 intake to to join Committee Corridor. Mel Stride is making a lot of noise at the Treasury mm-hmm. Committee. Is this a, a new sort of power base for disaffected Conservatives? I think it is, but I think it actually has been for some time now. So I think there's a, a few things going on here. So, you know, for the last sort of decade or so, we've seen uh, select committee chairs in the Commons have actually been elected by all MPs, uh, rather than sort of being selected in a much more narrow way when they were before. So they've they've started to become, you know, a more high profile, attractive thing for a lot of MPs. But then also what you've seen, you know, both within the Conservative Party under Johnson and under Truss, but also when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, is that the sort of wings within each of those parties who were the ones who thought, well, we're not going to make it onto the front bench, they actually opted to go and be select committee chairs, um, sort of seeing that as an alternative power base. So I think, yeah, we are seeing that absolutely continue. As you say, Mel Stride has been kind of very vocal. Uh, he's been a very good example in, in recent weeks of how correspondence by select committee chairs can have quite a big effect. It's not always about the sort of reports and that kind of thing. And he is making a lot of the political weather. He's been writing stuff. to and from the, the ABR. Yes, um, yeah. exactly. Um, and obviously applying a lot of pressure to the Chancellor through doing that. So it just goes to show that these are important positions. And what's interesting as well is that you've not now just got sort of MPs who serve as committee chairs in the hope that they will raise their profile and then go into government. You've got it happening the other way around as well. So look at somebody like Jeremy Hunt, who of course serves, you know, the longest ever serving health secretary and then goes on to chair the health select committee. So there's something quite different that's happening there. Very interesting. Let's look ahead now to what's coming down the track in Parliament because Alice has written a great paper for us looking ahead to some of the crunch votes and uh, decisions that the Prime Minister will have to take. So so Alice, as I said right at the, at the top of the pod, Truss has got a 70-seat majority. So, so why does she really have anything to worry about at this point? Yeah, absolutely. So as you think, you know, the bigger your majority, the easier it is to govern because you expect that your MPs will always vote with you. That's kind of just purely logical. But that's very, very clearly not what is happening here. You know, the issue that Truss is having is that she is afraid that she is not going to be able to get her measures through Parliament because of her own MPs. And they are the ones who are forcing her into into these U-turns. So it's an incredibly kind of unusual position to be in. But it's also one that her predecessor was in. You know, when Johnson was first elected in December 2019, he had this thumping big majority. And that was kind of taken at the time as, well, you know, after all of these years of minority government, coalition government, now a prime minister has a big majority, they can do what they want. And actually, that was not what his experience was at all. Liz Truss then comes in. And as Aubrey pointed out earlier, she was also not the biggest kind of choice among her parliamentary colleagues. But she doesn't seem to have learned any lessons from what happened to Boris Johnson or really reflected on the fact that actually she was not the first choice among her colleagues and has just kind of pressed ahead. And she is now suffering the same issues that Johnson did, but to a much, much greater and faster extent. 
And just take us through quickly, in your paper, you you looked ahead to some of the problems that might be coming down the track for her in Parliament. Give us a, a quick run through what those may be. There's sort of four sets of things, really. So the first of those is, of course, the the legacy of that mini budget back in September, because, of course, although it's been announced, most of it has not actually been approved by Parliament or implemented. There've been, there's been one U-turn so far, maybe more. So there's still fights over that to come. We've then got the medium term fiscal plan uh, in October or whatever it is that we're calling that one now. Um, Again, that will require approval and implementation through finance bill at some point. The third thing is that there is all the legislation that's already before Parliament that Liz Truss has inherited from Johnson. And some of that is also very, very controversial with her own MPs. So things like the online safety bill, for example. And then finally, there's the set of legislation that Liz Truss herself has promised, the kind of priorities that she wants to deliver on. So things like planning reform, for example, which, again, is hugely controversial among her own MPs. So there's sort of four sets of issues that span almost everything from kind of economic to the rest of domestic policy. And, you know, she might be able to duck decisions on some of those things for a little while, but she can't duck making decisions on those things forever. And whatever she does, she is going to upset an awful lot of her own MPs. Aubrey, this must be a great time to be a political journalist because <laughs> there are so there are all these different factions. I mean, I assume everybody wants to talk to you and tell you how everything's going to play out. I've been saying it's a great time to do this job ever since I started. <laughs> I'm sort of waiting for it to end. But yes, I mean, the sort of question of why do people brief against their own side is always, well, because they want to sort of get something over on their colleagues that they they think their colleagues are wrong so the fact that there's such kind of deep ingrained factionalism and that it's splintered in so many ways does of course make it really interesting as an observer and to a certain extent a lot easier as well because you're not sort of fishing around trying to find people who are unhappy everyone in the conservative (laughs) party is unhappy at a lot of other people in the conservative party so it's you know it is a fascinating time to be covering it but i think What's so interesting is you, Alice was talking back to Boris Johnson's days. I mean, he obviously did inherit a very split parliamentary party, which he was sort of not in control of when he became prime minister. And he solved that issue by essentially calling a general election, sweeping away all of the MPs that he didn't like by sort of withdrawing the whip from them so they couldn't stand. And then he got this huge cast of supporters who were then uh, believers in the Brexit project. And so sort of part of me wonders whether Liz Truss might look at that and decide, well, she's, as I think James Forsyth wonderfully put it, in coalition with her own parliamentary party, (laughs) whether or not actually an election is the best way to sort of blow away all of the people that you think are kind of part of the Conservative Party as it was during the first 12 years of government, but are not going to be part of what it should be uh, in her model in her eyes in the future. That's really interesting. And and from what you hear, what do you make of the prospects for the government's whipping op- operation in the uh, weeks and months to, to come? Um, I, I fear that it's going to go from very, very bad to somehow worse. I mean, they've obviously tried to refresh the team, but Wendy Morton, the new chief whip, was the first name within those few weeks that was being talked about quite openly as the the first kind of head on a stick, the scapegoat, the person who would inevitably have to be thrown under the bus for when all this sort of uh, was over. I think now we've slightly gone beyond that and actually it's not inconceivable that the Chancellor himself is forced to sort of step down or, or face the sack. 
But on the whipping operation specifically, I mean, they've brought in a lot of new people. I think there are a lot of uh, disgruntled sort of former minister types who are now on the back benches who are not feeling in the mood to be managed and told what to do by these sorts of people. And it's a bit like once you sort of open the floodgates and once these people rebelled the first time, then it becomes easy the second. I'm sure the IFG has done some fantastic stuff on this before. But yeah, as soon as you've rebelled once, it makes it much more likely that you'll do so again. So trying to put the genie back in the bottle becomes very, very difficult. And I don't think Liz Truss is going to find it much easier than Boris Johnson did. I think Alice had some fantastic figure about how many ex-ministers there are now on the back benches in your report, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, so it's, I think, 119 former ministers. Wow. And I mean, yeah, trying to whip people like that who perhaps don't see themselves as going back into ministerial office anytime soon. What kind of threats can you hold over them? There's not kind of very much there. Um, I suppose the other thing, actually, it's just quickly worth saying, building on Aubrey's point, is that you know, Liz Truss has obviously been weakened by the fact that she has already made one U-turn and doing that so soon into your time as Prime Minister is, is a really big problem. But it's also, I think, not just about U-turning, it's about how you U-turn. And for Truss to sort of spend a week, 10 days or so going, no, no U-turns, we're sticking to our guns, we're sticking to our guns, I'm all about consistency, I'm all about doing this, and then U-turn, that looks kind of it's almost the whatever the opposite is of a platonic ideal of a U-turn. Um, and as you say, you know, that means that the floodgates have kind of opened. If you've got one U-turn, you're going to push for more and more and more. So, yeah, very difficult. Joe, you worked in government during a premiership that was having some some tricky times in Parliament. What's your advice to Liz Truss on how to manage her parliamentary problems? So nothing like as tricky as, uh, as, tricky as this. I was there under John Major when he lost his... Majority, and we did, you know, people did spend a lot of time and effort in trying to manage Parliament and trying to, and one of the reasons I think John Major's premiership in many ways is a bit disappointing, not least for him, was that he kept on being advised to be serving up sort of, you know, red meat to his then smallish band of Eurosceptics as the price, uh, price in order to get the Maastricht Treaty through sort of many of his problems. But, uh, but that led him to do, you know, some of the back to basics things and stuff like that. And actually rather tarnished quite a lot of his premiership. Um, cause basically the result was you, yeah, that I think people successfully find is that uh, nothing ever buys off the Eurosceptics in, in a way. So it was quite difficult. But John Major was an ex-chief, an ex-whip. He'd uh, done time in the whip's office and he had, you know, I think really quite good party managers on his side. I mean, it was a sort of, you know, high profile job and he understood the importance of party management and the party in parliament. I think it's not clear to me that Liz Truss, you know, in a sense, like Boris Johnson, really got the importance of trying to keep your party happy and keep them on side. And what Liz Truss intriguingly seems to have forgotten was that while she was the choice of the party membership, she was not, unlike all her predecessors, she was not the person who came first in the vote of the MPs, which is a bit more like Jeremy Corbyn in that sense, of being elected against the wishes of the MPs rather than endorsed by the membership, you know, as the first choice of those MPs. And you might have thought that that required a degree of humility in the way in which you went about setting off your premiership rather than actually sort of, you know, tacking even further away from the centre of gravity among your MPs, which is what she seemed to do and seemed to lose even more of them than she might have been. Yeah. 
if they'd been relatively well disposed at the start. And very bizarre how think quickly things turned, I think, after the sort of mood of national unity prevailing up until uh, you know, that mini budget, because uh, her first weeks of her premiership were dominated by national mourning over the death of the Queen. I think it's very interesting what you say, Jill, because I think there's there's maybe a sort of just a fundamental fallacy here about what is normal in terms of parliamentary behaviour. I think that people like Johnson and, and Trust maybe are looking back to a time pre-COVID, pre-Brexit time, and even further back when you could, um, you know, as Alice put it earlier, sort of roughly reliably expect your MPs to support you. And actually what Brexit did was give MPs lots of experience of organising in other groups mm. and rebelling and and so on. And then you had a big swathe of MPs mm. come in during the course of COVID who have never been socialised into the ways of Parliament and how you're supposed to do things and don't necessarily have all those alliances that make them think, I must support the leadership. So actually, they need to have, to sort of reconceptualise what they can expect. In a sense, it's made the job of being an MP hugely more interesting and being yeah. a backbench MP massively more worthwhile, more worthwhile. It relates back to what Alice was saying about why are some people attracted to these committee chairmanships. Mm. And actually, you could say, in this government, to be a Conservative backbench committee chair is probably a more powerful and influential position than being in the slightly lower tier of the cabinet. Now, if there's one subject where Liz Truss is probably feeling pretty confident uh, about having a less stressful time in Parliament, maybe it's Brexit. After all, Brexit is done and MPs are thinking about other things. Except, of course, there's a lot of Brexit-related activity they should be thinking about. And at the moment, the scrutiny of that just isn't happening. And with uh, Jill and Alice, the three of us have put together a new IFG report, which is out today, uh, looking at this problem. Alice, this lack of scrutiny of Brexit really has been an issue, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. And I think sort of parliament and government have sort of fallen into this trap of thinking, oh, well, Brexit's done. You know, the UK has left the EU, tick box, that's fine, not much more to talk about. But of course, there's still an awful lot to talk about, be that sort of Northern Ireland protocol, be it, you know, ongoing issues about EU citizens living in the UK or UK citizens in the EU, all sorts of things. Um, and yeah, we're really just not seeing the same kind of dominance of Brexit in what the Commons is doing in particular, as we did back before 2019. And of course, part of the reason for that is that there's been a lot of other things going on. So COVID obviously was the sort of dominant issue that a lot of parliamentarians were focusing on during the pandemic. But even taking that into account, there's been a really noticeable drop off in the number of committees who were exploring kind of Brexit and future relationship issues, the number of questions that are being asked in the Commons about it and so on. So it's it's been a really noticeable decline from what we've seen previously. And Jill, this has been a, as much about Labour ducking scrutiny as the government um, really not sort of wanting to submit itself to scrutiny. The government is clearly scrutiny phobic. And actually, I think any sense that the trust uh, government might be more open to understanding and appreciating the benefits of scrutiny than the Johnson government, I think, has been rather rapidly discounted by uh, some of their early actions, even if they were enthusiastic early on, they're probably even less enthusiastic now than they were then. But I think it's really interesting what's happened. Uh, you'll remember, I mean, you, I think, were one of the first witnesses, Hannah, at the 
Hillary Benn committee on exiting the EU, a sort of big mega committee that was trying to look quite a big inclusive committee covering multiple shades of opinion in Parliament, uh, representation you know, across the four nations, things like that, that was trying really to get to grips with some of the sort of deeper fundamental issues about the post-Brexit relationship and a lot of the consequentials of Brexit. That committee morphed into the Future Relationship Committee, but then just expired. The government didn't make uh, the motion necessary to allow it to continue. And so instead, what is sort of expanded in the Commons to fill the space available, the Lords has reorganised its committees, and I think it's doing quite a reasonable job on scrutiny. Um, But in the Commons, by default, it fell back to the European Scrutiny Committee, which really a bit of a Brexit geek central, because it's the committee that used to do the nerdy, 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 heavy lifting of uh, lots and lots of document scrutiny and really become the preserve very much of the people who are, uh, to put it nicely, sort of EU obsessives, I think. So under their very long-standing and very knowledgeable chairman, Bill Cash. The problem is that that committee is now the only place in the Commons that's really taking an overview of the whole management of the relationship but has a membership which on the Conservative side it really, really is drawn from people you imagine are all uh, high-ranking ERGers, and Labour just doesn't really show up. Uh, it's really interesting. I think the Labour whips are finding it really difficult to get anyone to agree to serve on that committee. And although this should be a really important committee, uh, it should be you know, quite high profile as a cross-cutting committee like things like the Public Accounts Committee, you know, some of the big, uh, heavy-hitting select committees, uh, it's a real anomaly. It doesn't have an elected chair, doesn't have elected members. And so it's become, if you like, almost the wholly owned property of a faction of uh, the Conservative Party, which is, makes it really interesting. For example, they had an evidence session relatively recently on the government's proposals, which have now emerged in the form of the retained EU law bill. They had a lot of evidence from people, you know, respected academics, saying there were lo- that the idea of sunsetting EU law was incredibly problematic for the statute book, for business certainty, and things like that. Loads of that. None of that's reflected in the final report. The final report says the government's being a bit unambitious by having what was then a 2026 deadline and should bring it forward. So it's really Parliament is not doing a very good job at really testing the quality of the government's propositions. When ministers appear in front of the European Scrutiny Committee, they tend to be told that if anything, they're lagging the benefits of Brexit are too thin, they need to do more on that. And very few of the concerns that you hear in the wider business community outside Parliament are being reflected in that questioning of ministers, which is why we think it needs an overhaul. And I think the first place to start would just be to guarantee that now we do have both unionist and nationalist parties who take their seats in Parliament, that they both get seats on the committee, because if anywhere is acutely affected by Brexit, it's Northern Ireland. Very interesting. Aubrey, What's your reading of this? Do you think Labour's sort of positioning in relation to Brexit is is changing? Do you think this, Keir Starmer obviously sort of, his line has been sort of making Brexit work. Is is Labour sort of finding its Brexit voice now? So from my perspective, I think Keir Starmer politically was quite astute in how he handled the issue of Brexit when the UK finally left the European Union. Uh, 
I think it, it threatened to sort of overshadow and plague the party, particularly given he was the shadow Brexit secretary and so closely tied to the position about a second referendum. And it seemed like even after Brexit happened, that that issue was not going to go away. And I think he was probably quite clever to sort of get behind it, come up with this new phrase of make, make Brexit work, um, but generally try to sort of avoid it. Now, that obviously has some fairly unhelpful implications in terms of scrutiny, but it also shouldn't be a sort of long-term position. It shouldn't be something that I think he should be going into the next general election, sort of trying at all costs not to discuss at all. And that's where I suppose the sort of scrutiny falls down even further. I think from the UK government's perspective, to touch on what Jill was saying there, there's a real nervousness around the situation in Northern Ireland, particularly around the sort of governance, because obviously we had this uh, the situation where uh, Sinn Féin were the largest party, the DUP have refused to sort of uh, ensure that an executive is formed. And the government is really, really concerned that the only sort of way through this is for there to be another election there uh, for the Assembly. And what would happen then? I mean, could it be that the DUP get more seats because uh, the the voters sort of coalesce around the Unionist parties, realising that otherwise they're letting Sinn Féin in? What would that mean for Sinn Féin? There'd be real nervousness there as well. So this has much greater sort of consequences than just talking or not talking about something or the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill that's kind of just taking weeks and weeks and weeks to go through Parliament. It has quite significant consequences for what the UK as a whole looks like and whether Northern Ireland remains part of it in, you know, just a period of, say, six months onwards. And how do you think Brexit will feature at the next election? Do you think it will feature or do you think it will just be absent from... I mean, I think from the from the campaign trail, which will obviously the tone will be set by the the kind of messages that the leaders try to portray. I doubt that it will get much mention. If Boris Johnson was still prime minister, I imagine he'd be sort of crowing about it. And it's probably still a dividing line that voters remember that Labour was sort of quite opposed to the idea of going full force ahead with it in 2019, 2020. But I suspect that by then the battles will be very much moved on, that a Conservative Party that's trying to present itself as fresh, renewed, completely detached from the previous 12 years will not get any credit for tying itself so closely to the last one. It is quite interesting because the polls do seem to be moving slightly in the number of people who are saying either Brexit was a mistake or it's been handled badly. So it does seem in the last few months to have been a bit of a shift in public opinion there. But clearly one reason for Labour's disengagement of this was if you dared raise any question about how the government was doing Brexit, Boris Johnson was very effective in weaponising it repeatedly and saying, you know, Keir Starmer just wants to reverse Brexit. We all know that. He was the man who moved Labour towards supporting a second referendum. He's never on side with Brexit. In a sense, Keir Starmer's had to overcompensate for that, but that does mean that a lot of things like what is going on in all these specialised working groups set up under the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, Parliament's just sort of opting out of that. The government's not supplying sort of very much information to Parliament, and Parliament's you know, only interested from sort of one very you know one perspective on that. There isn't a sort of rigorous testing of the UK's approach there. So I think there is a big gap that needs to be filled somehow. Uh, we could look to Liz Trust to do it, but if Liz Trust doesn't, then I think actually some of these powerful select committee chairs should really start pushing and saying, actually, this really does matter 
Uh, and we need to start getting a grip on what's going on, what the government's doing behind closed doors here. It doesn't matter for our futures and insist on better arrangements. And just zooming out, the sort of implications for Parliament of this, uh, Alice, I mean, you were saying the Select Committee system is sort of uh, sort of strengthened and is 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 complemented for that, and obviously a, a crucial feature of that is the cross party nature of of committees. And and going back to what Jill was saying about how the work of the European Scrutiny Committee, which you know, it's completely legitimate if a certain set of members turn up and they are the ones who agree with the report and that's their view of the evidence. That's mm. what they get to sign off, mm. and that's that's the way the procedures work. But do you think that? the way in which it is working in relation to the European Scrutiny Committee potentially has consequences for the Select Committee system as a whole in terms of its reputation as being so good at managing different views and so on. Yeah, I think it absolutely does. You know, as you say, we've we've seen Select Committees become really quite powerful in recent years. And in part, that is because they are able to deliver kind of cross-party recommendations, which which always makes them harder for a government to ignore. I think one of the other things about the European Scrutiny Committee that is very, very unusual is that we talked earlier about how uh, select committee chairs are elected and how that's made them more high profile. Actually, the ESC is one of the very, very few exceptions to that. So Bill Cash, the the chair of the committee, is incredibly long-serving, as Jill says, very knowledgeable, but he is an unelected chair of that committee. And one of the things that we say is that actually that should change and that should be... um, a position that is elected like the vast majority of other select committees. Um, so I do think, you know, when, as Jill says, and as we say in our report, Brexit scrutiny is is relegated to being quite a niche activity that's associated not just with one party, but one section within that party. Um, that is ultimately something that I don't think looks particularly good to outsiders. I think it sort of puts a lot of other MPs off from getting involved and it does mean that that scrutiny, as we say, can become quite niche. And, and that's not really something that's good enough for anybody, whatever their views on Brexit might be. Well, but just to give you the final word, I mean, Liz Truss, in some ways, does does seem to be embracing her sort of foreign uh, relations role. Uh, perhaps it's a, a welcome relief from some of her <laughs> domestic woes. But do you think what are the, what are the, what do you think her approach is going to be to, to resolving and improving the relationship with the EU and, 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 and sorting out the, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol issues? Well, the mood music seems marginally better. But obviously, the further that the Northern Ireland Protocol bill goes through Parliament, the more you're going to get Brussels' backup. And I also think, to return to our point about what Labour would do, that it's not something that they can avoid the question of, of what happens if and potentially when they get into government. Mm. Because if we're all sort of talking on the assumption of the basis that Labour are 30 points ahead in the polls and may remain that way when the next general election is, then this isn't going to be an issue that just dies with Liz Truss whenever mm. she leaves. This is going to be something that Keir Starmer has to inherit. And the Parliamentary Labour Party and the membership of the Labour Party is still very, very heavily pro-Europe um, and pro-EU as well. So I don't think it's something that necessarily just yeah dies with Liz Truss and and that when she goes that everyone stops talking about Brexit completely because it's kind of one of the greatest hits that she can hark back to to get her backbenchers roaring when they when she needs them to this is going to be something that continues regardless of who is leading the next government very interesting and that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing many thanks to Jill Russell Alice Lilly and especially to Aubrey Allegretti great that you could join us 
And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And do please leave us a review. Ideally, a positive one. The Prime Minister may be willing to be unpopular, but we'd rather not be. You can also find recordings of all IFG events at our sister podcast channel, IFG Live, including a recording of this week's fantastic IFG event on the Home Office, and whether it is, to borrow a phrase, fit for purpose. You can also find our, bre- our Brexit scrutiny paper, the one we've just been talking about, on our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, as well as all the latest IFG expert commentary. A week has always been a long time in politics. It sometimes, though, feels a bit longer than that these days. So hold on to your hats and we'll see you next Thursday. <laughs>